What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, unpacking Palantir, the high-profile, highly secretive software company has operated quietly for 17 years, and it's finally on the public markets. This is one of those anticipated IPOs, I think, for maybe like the past 10 years. CEO Alex Karp on why it took so long. My lawyers will shoot me. What I can tell you is we are very, very focused on building software a long time before other people building it. And how he expects to become profitable with a small but mighty and mighty controversial list of customers. Well, how can you have this super valuable company? They're only 125 customers. To which I respond, yeah, but they're the 125 most interesting institutions in the world. I would ask people who are watching this to make a list of the institutions they admire in the world and then roughly figure out if they're using Palantir. That interview plus the politics behind the listing. Journalist Joanne Lippman. It's a company that is very, very closely aligned with the Trump administration. There's a huge question here about what happens if Trump does not win the presidency. It's Thursday, October 1st, October 2020. The year is still 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Joe Kernan. Becky is off today. Today on the podcast, Palantir goes public. The data analytics company that is usually described as secretive debuted yesterday via direct listing selling new shares on the New York Stock Exchange. Covered live on CNBC. Palantir is open for trading. Why secretive? Well, Palantir is named after a magical orb in Lord of the Rings, but in its 17-year history, it hadn't made much public. Palantir received early funding from the venture arm of the CIA and provides software products designed to crunch numbers. One of these programs is called Gotham, and it's for government clients who need to organize and understand massive amounts of data. So surveillance, predictive policing, possibly rooting out potential terrorism threats. Palantir works with U.S. Army, Navy, Department of Homeland Security, and it's working with Health and Human Services to help track the spread of coronavirus. UK data that we just recorded, we can immediately narrow in to emerging hotspot counties. Notable backers of Palantir include investor and co-founder Peter Thiel, who has gotten attention for his conservative politics and support of President Trump in the 2016 campaign. Good evening. I'm Peter Thiel. I'm not a politician, but neither is Donald Trump. As well as his work with technology companies. He was Facebook's first big investor. Other Palantir backers include Wall Streeters like Ken Langone and Stanley Druckenmiller. When Palantir filed its paperwork with the SEC to pursue a public listing earlier this year, it's called the S-1, investors finally got a sense of the books. Turns out Palantir had never turned a profit, and a huge chunk of its revenue came from its three biggest clients, which are anonymous. In the first six months of 2020, its revenue of nearly half a billion dollars was a big jump from the year before. This was addressed by Palantir CEO Alex Karp at the Investor Roadshow, which, true to Karp's personality and true to the weirdness of 2020, was virtual and started on cross-country skis. Welcome to Palantir's Investor Day. 
Uh, we're very happy and proud to have you here. Carp is unorthodox for a CEO. He has amazing curly hair. He uses the modifier super a lot, super cool. And speaking to potential investors, he made the pitch for the importance of Palantir's purpose. This way of looking at the world will literally save your institution and in many cases, save your life. Palantir has moved beyond just government clients. 53% of its customers are in the private sector. Big-name businesses who use a software program called Foundry include Airbus, Merck, Ferrari, and United Airlines. But its work for governments here and others around the world have stuck to its reputation. Palantir has faced criticism from privacy groups and for its work with the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol, tracking immigrants at the border. But CARP and the company have not backed off. In that S-1 filing, the leader of this highly valuable tech unicorn said Palantir's work is different. In his view, software missions to keep us safe may have become controversial, but companies built on advertising dollars are commonplace. And CARP took aim at big tech culture directly, writing, quote, Our company was founded in Silicon Valley, but we seem to share fewer and fewer of the technology sector's values and commitments. Palantir moved its corporate headquarters to Denver and its shares headed to Wall Street. If you think we are going to change our internal culture drastically, if you think we are going to work with regimes that are not allied with the U.S. and are abusing human rights, if you think um, that, um, that the future is going to be a super rosy place where the past ways of supplying software are going to work, because enterprises and governments uh, do not need to be reformed, you should not invest in Palantir. Andrew Ross Sorkin has interviewed Alex Karp a number of times. This conversation was recorded Wednesday, yesterday, right after the first trade for Palantir on the New York Stock Exchange. We've had lots of conversations over the years. This has been probably one of the most highly anticipated uh, offerings uh, or, or listings in a very long time. Almost every year that we would talk in Davos, I would invariably ask you, are you going to go public? Are you going to list? And invariably, you wouldn't. So let's start with why now? Well, um, first of all, thank you for having me. And I, and I really would like to thank all the Palantirians who stuck with us and built this company and our investors who stuck with us. And, you know, over the years, we've been skeptical about uh, listing. And for lots of reasons, we, we really needed to, to build our products it, with enough protection so that we would be ready to launch them into the public space. Um, and we built, we built out PG, which is our government product and our foundry product, and, uh, and built a way to maintain them so that we wouldn't have to scale the number of people. And, you know, we've reached a base where we're, our company is very significant, and we believe being in the public space will help us with our clients and help us grow. And quite frankly, I believe the people at Palantir who've built this company over 17 years uh, deserved uh, access to liquidity. Uh, and so we, we decided this would be a great time for us. And uh, so far, it's been a really interesting process. And, and our clients are embracing it. So it's a, it's a really good time for us. And I'm, I'm very, very grateful. Alex, the, the single biggest question that, that investors ask about this company is 17 years in, uh, while you know may have an operating profit, the company unto itself is still not profitable. So, so walk us through what the path to profitability looks like. Well, you know, we build these products years before people build them, and that takes money. And what you see in the COVID uh, pandemic crisis is we had built this way of going to market with Foundry, which would allow us to literally supply an enterprise with a completely new stack of products within six hours and maintain them. Um, and what you saw when we did that is we grew the company 49%, 49% off of a 743 base. And the divergence between expenses 
and, uh, and growth is dramatic. Um, and we're, we're just going to be very, very focused on, on invigorating our software offering. Um, but when you're growing 49% off of a 740 base, um, I think that's a pretty strong indication of what the future could hold. And we're super proud of that. And I think you're seeing that people are taking a look at our financials. And our, 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 our company has often been viewed, viewed as complex and uh, needing explanation, both moral and financial. But it turns out our financials are quite simple. And you look at this dramatic growth with flatlining expenses. And I think that gives investors comfort. And it certainly makes me feel as um, co-founder and CEO that we made the right decision to invest heavily over well over a decade in building software the way other people don't to build it. And you see the results. Do you think, though, profitability is a 2022 proposition or 2023 proposition? Can I push you on that? Well, you, know, uh, you can push me. But of course, my lawyers will shoot me. I can tell you what I can tell you is we are very, very focused on building software a long time before other people building it, supplying it. And I'm, I think that our, our year first first half of the year growth will be reflective of the future. And if I'm right, uh, that will answer all of your interesting questions. And we'll be interviewing, you'll be interviewing me again at maybe not at Davos, but virtually. And we'll see how we do. I'm, I'm right. quite confident, confident we'll do well. Well, uh, Alex, one of the other questions people ask is, how to comp your company, meaning what are the comparables? Should this be considered uh, a technology company, a SaaS company, uh, or should this be considered a much more traditional consulting company? Can you speak to that? Well, um, I, I think what the investors are seeing is they're asking the question at this point. They used to ask, is this, is this a company that builds software for the government, and how do they build it? Of course, we always sold this as a license. Then they saw our margins in the first half of the year around 80%. So I think the real debate now has moved significantly away from is this software, is this services, because although people think we're very smart, we're not smart enough to get 80% uh, margins off of a services company. The question then is, how do you comp it? And, and honestly, I think that's something investors will have to figure out. We're not focused on that. We're focused on we are going to be the most important software company in the world, and people will figure out what that's valued over a long period of time. And we're very comfortable with investors toying around. It could be like this. It could be like that. We are going to deliver the world's best software with the world's most efficient way of delivering it. Investors will decide what's that, what's that is worth to them. And I think you'll find in, in a number of years that there will be a consensus. Palantir is a truly special software company that is arguably the most important software company in the world. Alex, as everybody knows, uh, you have uh, contracts with uh, various government agencies, obviously, uh, and uh, some of the bluest of the blue chip companies in America today. But it's a concentrated list of about 125 companies. About 28 percent of the revenue actually comes from three of those clients unto themselves. Two thirds of the revenue comes from the top 20. How much of a risk does that pose on one side? But also, when you think about the opportunity on the other, if we're having a conversation like this in, in 12 or 24 months, how much do you want that list to increase in size? Or do you just want to keep that group effectively and, uh, uh, and effectively raise the margin or cost uh, for those clients and grow that business? Well, we want to do all of the, we're going to do all of the above. So what's interesting about our client list, people, people ask, well, how can you have this super valuable company? They're only 125 customers. To which I respond, yeah, but they're the 125 most interesting institutions in the world. These aren't just any institutions. They're literally, I would ask people who are watching this to make a list of the institutions they admire in the world. 
and then roughly figure out if they're using Palantir. We don't go out and advertise who uses our product, but I would say the list of our clients is the single most impressive institutions in the world I've ever seen. We, so we want to keep these clients. Also, investors will have noticed in the S1 that well over 90% of our growth in the first half of the year came from our existing clients. What does that mean? Our existing clients, the most important clients in the world, are really happy. That's what it means. So of course, we're going to expand those really happy clients who happen to be the coolest people on the planet. And then we've built this product, which has gotten very little attention, called Apollo. Apollo allows us to maintain and deliver software to any number of clients with essentially not growing our, our force, our, our palantiring force at all. So we're planning, now that we have Apollo, to grow the number of super cool customers all over the world. And we can do it without raising our headcount. And so what you're going to see is we're going to continue building with our clients. Why? They're the most interesting clients in the world. And they clearly, based on our numbers, like us and some love us. Um, we are going to expand our client base. Why? Because now with Apollo, we can deliver the whole stack in six hours. I don't think any other company I've ever seen in the world can do that. And we can do it with efficiencies that I don't know any other company is going to do because we can do this with a small number of people sitting in our one office that we have, maintaining, updating, and providing them with new products we build. So they don't have the Frankenstein monster that takes two years to build and has to be maintained with either human hours, like in the government contracting case, or by purchasing new product, or compensating salespeople, or hiring new IT right. people you don't even like talking to. You can actually buy one stack. So we are going to increase our revenue with current customers, get new customers, and continue our march. Alex, how easy or hard is it? Because I know you've talked about trying to keep things open uh, in terms of the platform, if you will. How easy or hard it for, it, uh, for a client to leave in terms of the churn? Well, as I mentioned, 95% of our, our current revenue comes from existing customers. So customers, obviously, if a customer wants to leave, they can. What I, th I think the main reason our customers stay, besides the fact that the output is very significant, is they look at this product we supply, Foundry, the average customer's paying less than $6 million, and they compare it to buying 20 products, paying ongoing licensing fees you can't get out of, or building something over years. And the last thing they compare it to is, we're not delivering a roadmap. Most people are delivering a roadmap of what are you gonna get in a year. We're delivering a product after six hours. So customers can leave, but what you see in the numbers is they by and large don't. Right. And it's not because of my charming personality. Alex, uh, let me ask you a different question. We've had lots of fascinating uh, geopolitical and philo philosophical questions about the role of technology and Palantir itself, as well as uh, the approach that Silicon Valley has taken. I'm curious in terms of risks, um, how you think about this. Amnesty International, as you know, uh, criticized the company recently uh, for its role uh, working with ICE. How much of that does, does that pose as a risk to the larger business, especially the corporate business, at a time when we have corporations taking both political positions and also being oftentimes being socially activist um, to your business? Well, look, the fact that we take positions that are sometimes controversial can cost us clients. But it also gets us clients. Because when we talk to a client and we say, look, we're going to work with you, we're not going to walk away just because the winds change. And this is super important, especially to our government clients. If you're supplying the special forces and the army in the U.S., those clients have to know that they will not be left on the battlefield because, a, because Silicon Valley has decided they don't like the warfighter. So, of course, that costs us revenue. 
Many of our decisions have cost us revenue. We only work in certain countries. We've walked away from work because of human rights issues. We've said we disagree with very prominent human rights organizations, and we engage in dialogue. But it also, by the way, is a reason why I think people who are watching this may consider investing or not investing. We are not going to stand up here and say we're for everybody. We're not going to pretend. And by the way, we're going to try to avoid jargon. We will actually tell you what we think. It's not going to be curated by 50 media people. It may have to be curated by a couple lawyers. But one of the unique things about Palantir is we actually say things. And we actually stick to them. And that's something not everyone likes, but many of our customers do. And by the way, I think it is a reason why 95% of our revenue comes from current customers. Because when we tell them we are going to deliver, we are going to deliver. Alex, one of the other questions is, now you are a public company, uh, but as you know, uh, you have three tiers of, of stock, uh, classes of shares, that is. And to some degree, uh, there have been critics who've said this is effectively a, a, a private company masquerading as a public company. Can you speak to the decision uh, to structure the shares uh, the way that they are structured and, and how governance experts and folks should think about that? I think it's important for government experts to look and make and deliver opinion, but I would also ask them to consider the environment we live in. Palantir has been in Silicon Valley up till recently for 17 years. And in Silicon Valley, defending the warfighter, providing our troops with technology that allowed them to come home is very controversial. I do not believe a company like ours that may, takes really consequential decisions for government clients and non-government clients could be run without an F-share structure. And I understand there's criticisms. Investors look and say, well, why should Palantir have an F structure? What, is my, what, is my, what, what can I do if I don't agree with them? The primary reason why we fought for an F structure and we asked investors to buy into it was we need to be able to go to our, especially our Intel and defense clients and say, we will not just blow with the wind. And those shares for a company like ours give us a unique ability to have long-term commitments to the most important clients in the world, both commercial and government. And that's why I believe they're super important. And I also, again, would encourage people, if, if that's not something you're comfortable with, there are many shares to buy. You don't have to buy Palantir shares. You should buy Palantir shares knowing that these shares reflect our views. Alex, uh, we've often had these conversations in Davos where globalization has ruled uh, the roost. But as you know so well, uh, the world seems to be shifting to a deglobalized world, a splinter net, if you will. Um, how do you think long term that will affect the business of Palantir? Um, we made this decision, which is actually a secret only because no one believes it's true, which is that we didn't solve the problem of fighting terrorism. We solved the problem of doing data protection and fighting terrorism. And the architecture we built both for PG and for Foundry will allow a superset to work with subsets, which means if the world splinters and every country has its own jurisdictions, it's going to be very hard for normal software companies because they're not built to do that. But it's going to be very good for Palantir. And finally, Alex, uh, if we have this conversation five years from now today, how would you measure success for Palantir? What would be the metrics with which you'd measure it? Um, you know, they're, they're obviously financial metrics, but I'll tell you, Palantir has re recruited and retained, I believe, the most interesting, most talented, and most ethical people I've ever met. And we work with, I've interacted with thousands of institutions. And in five years when we meet, I think you'll say to me, wow, 
that wasn't just you saying that because it was the right thing to say. It's actually true. And the products that we'll build over that period will, will, will be unique, and they will tilt the course of history uh, in, in the favor of things that are good and noble, uh, and will not avoid the complexity that's necessary to do that. Alex Karp, we wish you lots of luck. Uh, and we do look forward to having that conversation, hopefully in five years, but hopefully sooner than that. Thanks so much, Alex. Next on Squawk Pod, Palantir Unpacked. Finally, the high-profile listing we've been waiting for, but is it much ado about nothing? CNBC contributor and, hate fellow podcaster, Alex Kentrowitz. To say it's just one thing uh, to me misses the bigger picture, which uh, to me, I think that this is just a weak company. Palantir, politics, and pricing, right after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Andrew. Palantir made its public debut. It did that yesterday. It closed at $9.50, down from its $10 open and intraday high of about $11.42, but still well above what was the reference price of $7.25. Worth noting, the debut wasn't smooth sailing all the way around. Palantir employees and alumni complained they were unable to sell some of those shares after the listing because they couldn't transact on a platform provided by Morgan Stanley, one former employee telling CNBC that the system finally did start working late in the morning. That was Pacific time. Morgan Stanley said it experienced slowness that may have resulted in delayed logins, but uh, call centers were available to execute trades. But Joe, uh, this has been, uh, you know, this is one of those anticipated IPOs. I think for maybe like the past 10 years, every year we, Palantir was on the list of, are they gonna go public? We'd ask Alex, are you gonna go public? And finally, uh, 17 years in, they founded the company 17 years ago. Uh, it is now a public company, so uh, always described as a secretive company, but uh, uh, hard to hard to be hard to be as opaque uh, or hard to be opaque when you're public now. The uh, it was implied in some of the articles about the inability of of some of the people to sell that it would be there may be more selling today, but close of 950 indicated 1020 to 1025. So that they're not seeing that yet. Uh, it's, uh, it's unclear what's going to happen, happen to the price. I think there's been lots of questions about just broadly uh, the valuation of this company. How do you value it? Do you value it uh, against a big SaaS enterprise kind of company? Do you value it against consulting companies uh, on the other end, which, of course, would have a, a lower multiple? Um, and, and, and how you think about you know, the government contracts versus the, cor- the corporate business? Uh, they have a very concentrated number of clients. It's only about 125 clients, and actually uh, two-thirds of the business comes uh, from the top 20 of them. Uh, and so it's going to be very interesting to see, A, whether they grow the number of clients or whether they uh, effectively grow the margin from the, cl- the, the, the clients they have. They have some of the, the, the bluest of the blue chips, but it's going it's, it's to be but an interesting if you were, one to watch. Uh, if you were a longtime investor and you, you know, you're waiting, you've talked about how long we've talked about the IPO with yep. this, or, or the company, the, you know, you may if you've been waiting to get be out and, then, and then you were unable to yesterday, then I, I don't know, I, it made sense to me that maybe there'd be, but maybe they finally were able to uh, by the, by the right. uh, There is, the I day. should note, for, for certain people, there's a lockup. So there will be, 
by default, some kind of overhang right. uh, for, for, for a bit of a period, no matter what. Okay. Joining us right now to help break down Pouncer's first days are two CNBC contributors, Joanne Littman, distinguished fellow for journalism at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, and uh, Alex Kentrowitz, founder of Big Technology. Uh, Joanne, I'm, I'm curious what your, what your take is on this particular offering. Uh, it has a particularly unique governance structure, and of course there are still questions around what the right uh, comparable would be in, in terms of trying to find a, a multiple on this stock. Yeah, I think that what's really interesting about Palantir is, you know, you raise those excellent points, but what I think is very interesting here is how investors are going to value it and what happens after an election. I mean, we have to think about why did they go public right now? They've been, um, you know, it's been 17 years. They've never turned a profit. Uh, we're not talking five or 10 years. We're talking 17 years with no profit. But it's a company that is very, very closely aligned with the Trump administration. You've got Peter Thiel, a co-founder, who's been one of his biggest supporters of the president. And then you've got um, the work that the company does, which is extremely opaque, uh, but seems to work with a lot of the uh, Trump administration's sort of favorite projects. We're looking at immigration, ICE. It works with the military, uh, with intelligence. And, you know, the CIA was an early um, uh, seed investor. And so I think there's a huge question here about what happens if Trump does not win the presidency. You can certainly understand why they chose right now to go public, because Trump is still firmly in office. I do think there's big questions what happens after an election. OK, I want to go to Alex, but uh, having covered this company for a very, very long time, Joanne, I, I will take the other side of that argument with you, which is I think this has nothing to do with the Trump presidency at all. Alex Karp, the co-founder of the company, the, the man who actually runs the company, is publicly anti-President Trump. He has publicly come out and said he did not vote for President Trump and does not want to vote for President Trump in the future. Um, and so th the idea that, that their business somehow has grown as a function of this administration, I think, uh, in truth, uh, is uh, a, a, a bit of a myth. But let me talk to Alex about sort of where he takes, he may have a different view. Uh, Alex, I think there's lots of risks to this company, but I don't think it's it's the president. Right. I mean, look, I, I mean, I won't say that, that, you know, they got eight hundred million dollars from the Department of Defense after Peter Thiel publicly took a bet on Trump. So to say there's no link to me doesn't really uh, feel right. But on the other hand, you know, they've been working on this for 17 years. It's not as if this business just emerged yesterday uh, and, and has only now started to figure it out. In fact, I don't really think they figured it out. They were worth $20 billion in 2015. Their public market valuation is now around $21 billion. You would have uh, invested in the Vanguard stock total index fund. You would have made 80% on your money versus, you know, potentially losing money on Palantir. So, you know, I don't know. I don't really find this uh, to be a strong stock. You know, I think there is that risk with the election that Joanne mentioned, but there's plenty of other risk as well. And to say it's just one thing uh, to me misses the bigger picture, which uh, to me, I think that this is just a weak company. Joanne, the issue that I wonder about, and we've talked about social activism together for a long time, is the role of Palantir on one side working for uh, the U.S. government, by the way, working for governments around the world and uh, potentially on controversial issues, and then at the same time working uh, uh, for corporations who are increasingly looking at who their partners are and what their social activist 
take may be. So, for example, if Palantir is working for ICE uh, and their employees on the other end of that at some other company that's typically been a client, that's to me where I see a potential clash. Do you? A hundred percent. Actually, you you in your interview with Alex Karp, you raised with this with him, and I think this is an excellent point, and really one of the the major issues that we'll be looking at going forward, which is companies right now are um, you know at this in, in this moment in time where they are really involved in social activism. You, they're coming out in support of Black Lives Matter. They've been coming out in support of Me Too. Um, so there's this sort of social activism and even political activism element that we're seeing in the corporate world right now. And is that at odds with uh, Palantir's um, right. businesses and, and its practices? And you already mentioned you know, Amnesty International, which called it out for potential human rights violations. Um, Alexandra, uh, Alexandria, uh, um, uh, Ocasio-Cortez wrote a letter to the SEC saying you ought to investigate them for their opaque relationships and their involvement in domestic and foreign intelligence. Yeah, good points. Right. And Alex, my question to you finally is uh, the governance structure and why investors are so, I mean, this isn't just a Palantir issue. This is a, a, a cross tech and even beyond that. Is, is there just such little supply of new companies? I mean, in this SPAC day and age, you think there, there's constant supply. Why, why investors are willing to accept uh, these structures where in many ways the companies are almost remaining private? I don't know why investors would be willing to accept a deal like this. I mean, you look at the other companies that this is playing out in a place like Snapchat, for instance, and I don't think it's really worked out well for them at all. So, uh, you know, Palantir right. okay. set it up this way, but ultimately it's not going to be a good thing down the line. Alex, Joanne, we appreciate uh, both of you being with us and of course your perspectives uh, and uh, playing along with the debate. So thank you. Squawk Pod. We'll be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Joe Kernan. All right, well, check this out. Um, I like Subway. I, I don't know. Uh, if it's not bread, <laughs> let's, let's read the story. Ireland Supreme Court has ruled that the bread served at Subway restaurants can't legally be defined as bread. Definition was set to differentiate other baked goods from plain bread, uh, which is exempt from the value-added tax. Subway's bread contains five times the qualifying limit of sugar to qualify as a staple food, which would exempt it from the tax. As a result, it is classified as a confectionery, as a confectionery. So this is uh, just in Ireland uh, at this point. I had no idea 
although um, I haven't been there in a while, but I can find something there to eat Sorkin, you know what I mean? It's not bad, and you know, there is bread, there's carbs, but they got a lot of, uh, a lot of that stuff, a lot of vegetables, a lot of things that you can load up uh, the sandwich. I think it's, it's the biggest chain in the world, isn't it, still? But the most... Uh, it may very well be. It's healthy, remember? Remember, it you can lose weight. Yeah. Remember, um, uh, I don't... Uh, what's no, his name? Ixnay on the you don't uh, think, Ace no? and J, I, I don't oh. th whatever his name was. I don't think, yeah. They don't okay. want to bring him up. We don't Sorry. want to bring him up. Let's go. Let's, let's move okay. on. All right. We're going to break. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod, available wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.